You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hello, hello. This is episode 64 with Tom Woldridge. I'm so excited for this one. One of my role models in this world of eating disorders and psychoanalysis. So a little bit about him. Tom is a psychologist and a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. He's a psychoanalyst and chair in the Department of Psychology at Golden Gate University. He has written and published journal articles and book chapters and full-on books and edited this, one of my favorite books. Now, I think I've talked about it a whole bunch uh, called The Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders. I'm holding it right now, uh, edited by Tom Woldridge. His third book is actually coming out soon, if you're listening to this in real time. He is on the Scientific Advisory Council of the National Eating Disorders Association, faculty at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California and the Northern California Society for Psychoanalytic Psychology and assistant clinical professor at USFC's medical school and uh, has a private practice in Berkeley, California. So, uh, you know, does a couple things. So like I said, one of my favorite people in this uh, world of the intersection between eating disorders and psychoanalysis. And part of what I really love about our conversation is that we talk about what psychoanalysis is, maybe taking out the word psychoanalysis, deep work therapy, whatever you want to sub, why it's actually helpful and how it could be helpful to you. We talk about some of the really, really complex psychoanalytic ideas in ways that are so easily understandable and in a way that helps you begin to think more creatively about your own life and how there might be more than meets the eye about your relationship with food. The subtitle of that book that I was talking about before is When Words Fail and the Body Speaks, which is such a beautiful way to sort of capture our conversation and the topics that we talk about. Because ultimately, when we talk about the function of an eating disorder, we talk about what are we trying to express that we cannot possibly express with words and what the hell do we do about it? All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. I am very excited to have this conversation. In sort of an academic nerd, weird way, I'm like, oh, one of my role models is here. I'm very excited for this. <laughs> so thank you. I really appreciate it. No, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe just before we start, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and some of the work that you do? Sure. Yeah. I'm a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. I split my time between uh, working as a professor at a university in San Francisco of, of psychology and time in private practice. In, in my private practice, I see about half and half of half of my patients are people with eating disorders or struggles in relation to, you know, food, weight, uh, body shape. And the other half are, are people who are in more formal psychoanalysis. Oh, I love that. That's probably so fun for papers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really does, you know, give, you know, kind of mix of different kinds of experience. And, and, and I found it to be really generative. Yeah. And it, you didn't stick in over there that you write a lot and you speak a lot and somewhere over there, find time to do all of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. 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 So you might be one of the most perfect people to talk about this in terms of the sort of intersection between psychoanalysis and eating disorders. For some reason, psychoanalysis, or even just like what people say the term, it's gotten a bad rap. So sometimes I don't even like to say it. I say I do deep work therapy, but I guess just as a way of introduction, a way of introduction, the way that we conceptualize things and specifically eating disorders, what is psychoanalysis? How does it conceptualize uh, mental illness differently? What What is sort of the premise of psychoanalysis, if you will? You know, it's a big question. So I'll say a few different things and hopefully I'll, you know, manage to to get it you know, what you have in mind. One foot, please. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first thing I'd say is, you know, I think psychoanalysis does have a bad rap in the eating disorders treatment world. And to some degree that's justified and to some degree it's not. So, you know, um, in the past, you know, in the forties, fifties, sixties, you know, to some degree, psychoanalysis was the only game in town, you know, all mental health treatment for the most part starts with, uh, psychoanalysis and that body of work that developed, you know, in this country and around the world. And, you know, unsurprisingly, the first people to psychologically theorize eating disorders, for the most part, were psychoanalysts. And they got some things right and some things wrong. I think part of what at times was wrong is that there could be a kind of reductive explanation of where eating disorders come from. So, you know, for example, one of the common ones that emerges, say, from the work of Hilda Brook is, you know, eating disorders stem from a disturbance in the mother-child relationship in some particular, say, developmental period. And, you know, I think the thing that we now can see more clearly is that there are many causes and conditions that give rise to an eating disorder. We can't rely on a single reductive explanation. And, you know, we certainly don't want to contribute to the stigma of having an eating disorder or to make caretakers feel blamed for having a child with an eating disorder when they are an important part of getting that child treatment. So, you know, I think that there are reasons that psychoanalysis has gotten a bad rap. At the same time, I think there has been a, an effort to destigmatize eating disorders, which I think is a good thing. Um, but in doing that, there's been a kind of throwing out of the baby with the bathwater. There's been a, a kind of rejection, at least in certain camps, of developmental thinking altogether. And, you know, the thing that I think that psychoanalysis does so well is it really applies a developmental lens to the given presenting problem. And with the recognition that the process of development is complicated and, you know, difficult to discern, it provides a way of thinking beneath the surface. So if somebody comes in with a diagnosis, say anorexia nervosa, that's a descriptive diagnosis. If you open the DSM or the ICD, you're going to see a list of behavioral observable criteria that meet the requirements for that diagnosis. It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on beneath the surface. And what's going on beneath the surface really matters in a treatment, right? You want to be able to address the things that are not causing as much as maintaining the eating disorder. And those are, you know, often psychological. They're not only psychological, they're social factors, they're biological factors, but the psychodynamic conceptualization really helps us understand what's beneath the surface. 
Yeah. And I think what you're saying and trying to explain here is that there isn't one reason why somebody would develop an eating disorder or any form of mental illness. It's a developmental process process. It's various different experiences and relationships, and it's full of complexity. So if we say, oh, you have an eating disorder because of your mom, then we really have missed the point. Yeah, though, you know, I think you could look at it both ways. You know, we certainly wouldn't want to say you have an eating disorder because of your mom. On the other hand, we also wouldn't want to say that, you know, things that happened in your family between you and your caretakers are somehow exempt from what has led you to this point. The construction of a personal narrative has to account for a lot of complexity and nuance. And, you know, our important, our, our relationships with our attachment figures lay down the frameworks we have, the internal capacities we have around things like emotion regulation. And eating disorders often have something to do with regulating difficult feelings. Just something that you had said before, uh, not even so much about the development, but more so in the maintenance of an eating disorder um, in terms of trying to understand what's happening under the surface. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think our job as clinicians is not so much to go back in time and ferret out the cause of the eating disorder, but to really think about the capacities that need to be developed in the person we're working with so that they can move beyond it. Now, you know, one of the capacities that often needs to be developed is a personal narrative, a narrative that encompasses a person's history and, you know, why they are the way that they are. Um, we know that that's very related to um, security and attachment, but it's not so much about pinning down causality. I like that. I think that often this is a challenge that I come up against a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, where people will say, you know, I've, I've tried everything. I just need to know why, why do I have this eating disorder? And what I find very often is those people maintain a very cerebral approach to treatment. There's a lot of, a lot of, you know, why questions, but then it doesn't actually translate into anything. Um, and I'm curious if you have any sort of insight or ideas on that, or if, even just from what your experience has been with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that that's, that's a, an insightful comment because, you know, psychoanalytic treatments are often caricatured as going after insight alone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, real insight is lived insight. Real insight is insight that you're able to live out in your life, which is, you know, dependent on the development of certain emotional capacities. Just understanding, you know, oh, I have an eating disorder because of X, Y, and Z, that, you know, just as a purely intellectual insight, it doesn't get you anywhere. You actually have to be able to live out something in a new way. So what are we talking about when we talk about different emotional processes or, or ways of actually living this out? What does that look like? Well, you know, let's, let's take the idea of putting feelings into words. Right. So, you know, a lot of people with eating disorders are the, the sort of jargon word for that is alexithymic. And, and <laughs> it's just a fancy way of saying they have trouble putting feelings into words. 
Do you have an Amazon Echo at home? Because mine always goes off when I say the term alexithymia. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't tried that. I'll I'll try that this afternoon. She goes, what? Yeah, (laughs) I'm not talking to you. (laughs) That's funny. So, you know, this, this idea of putting feelings into words, the research is pretty clear that across different eating disorder diagnoses, that capacity is impaired. And, you know, maybe I could just talk a little bit about how I understand that. So, you know, we're all having feelings all the time and feelings start in the body, right? The body is like the basis of our emotional life. If you think about a baby, you know, before a baby has words or the ability to speak, you know, an infant or a newborn, they're having feelings, they're hungry, they're upset, they're wet, they're wanting comfort. And they're, you know, they're, they're making noises, they're moving their arms and legs, you know, they're kicking, they're crying. That is an expression of feeling. But because they don't have words yet, it's expressed at the bodily level and at the motor level, the motor in the sense of the movement, the, the way that they use their bodies. And then as we get older, we start to develop the capacity for representation. We start to be able to put images to feelings and words to feelings, and then to develop narratives that capture our feelings. And, you know, I think one of the things that psychoanalysis can really speak to is that if we don't have that representational capacity, if we don't have access to words and images and narratives, then the feelings have to go somewhere else. And and where else can they go? Well, they can go into the body and they can go into behaviors. They can go into actions. So, you know, one way to think about eating disorders, it's only one way, it's one lens, is, you know, that people have feelings that they don't have conscious awareness of, they can't put into words, they can't, you know, represent with images. But those feelings still have to be regulated. And one way that they can be regulated is through a symptom, through a binge, through a purge, through restriction. And so, you know, our task as psychotherapists is to help people develop that capacity, that representational capacity. That then is what makes an insight, an alive insight, an insight that really matters. Yeah, I have a few questions about that. Maybe I'll start with, and let me know if we should position this question elsewhere. How do you actually do that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that with your patients or your clients that, that don't really have the capacity to put their experience into words? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, how does a mother do that with a baby or a father do that with a baby? So I think if we look at that as a kind of prototype, we can see that the ability to develop that, the development of that capacity is a it's an intersubjective, it's a two-person process. So, you know, the baby is, let's say, um, you know, waking up from a nap and starting to cry and the parent comes in, the parent hears the baby crying, the parent even feels the baby's feeling. You know, if you've been a parent, you know that when your baby is upset, you feel it in your body. And so then you start to think, okay, well, you know, what's, what's going on here? Are they hungry? Are they wet? Are they tired? Okay, they're not tired, you know, because they just woke up you know, maybe they're, maybe they're wet. Okay. Let me check the diaper. So there's, there's this process of, of reflection and reverie that goes on in the parent where they're trying to understand what the baby's feelings mean. And then the parent responds to the baby in a way that conveys their understanding. So they check the diaper, they get the milk and maybe they are, you know, also talking to the baby, Oh, you know, sweetie, you're hungry right now. So it's, it's conveying to the baby that feelings make sense these are words that, you know, can be uh, used to capture feelings. And you repeat that process 
millions of times, right, as a child is growing up. This is a process that psychoanalysts call containment. And over time, you're contributing to the child's representational world. You're helping them to develop an inner life that is constituted by words and images. And it's the same process that happens in psychotherapy. So a patient comes in, you know, they had a binge last night. Well, okay, you know, let's go back to that moment. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What happened in the afternoon? How did it go at school? You know, as you were driving home, what did you see? What did you think about? Any sense of what you were feeling? We, we try to help using our own curiosity, using our own mind to find the words that can bind and capture the feeling that got expressed in the symptom. So you're saying it definitely takes time and uh, to a certain extent, it's just internalizing a certain way of approaching one's inner experience. So how can you organize this by using some of the information like words or other representations to organize what's going on internally? Yeah, that, you know, the, the development of a new capacity takes time. And, you know, I don't mean to convey through any of this that there's not a place for a focus on symptom reduction. Of, of course, people can be very helped by interventions that concrete and behavioral and give them structure and routine and plans and support. I'm, I'm 100% in favor of all of that. And, you know, it's needed because eating disorders, you know, there's, there's some urgency in trying to help people, you know, function better as quickly as we're able. But if we neglect these underlying capacities, at least in my experience, it won't stick. You know, maybe a given symptom gets resolved, but the underlying deficit will be expressed somewhere else. Yeah, I like to call that the game of whack-a-mole. So uh, when, yes. when this issue is resolved, it comes up in something else. Only because we were talking about time a second ago. I'm curious, what, what do you respond when somebody asks you, so how much time is this going to take? You know, it would depend a lot on the particularity, you know, of that individual and my sense of what anxieties they're bringing to the question. You know, probably first I try to understand what's driving the question. You know, is it, mm -hmm. is it you know, for example, um, a kind of dismissive stance towards their own emotional life? You know, I'm just here to fix this problem and be done with it so I can move on. Is it, you know, a communication to me? You know, I feel uncomfortable with you and I want to be with you as little as possible. So, so, so what I'm getting at is I, I wouldn't take it at face value to begin with. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's always a place for a concrete answer. I don't want to, you know, just string somebody along without answering their question. And, you know, the most honest question, the most honest answer, at least at the beginning is, you know, I don't know. You're, you know, I, I'm, I'm just getting to know you. I'm just hearing more about what you're struggling with. You know, I don't know yet where it comes from in you. We haven't yet, you know, discovered, um, you know, what would need to change for it to be different for you. So I'm, we're kind of fumbling along here together to try to find an answer to that question. Yeah, it's an age-old question. <laughs> I'm curious from, you know, even just going back when you were saying that it's not, or when we tried to have a sort of reductionist approach to the I guess, deeper meaning of the quote causes of an eating disorder. It's, it is very easy to focus on one thing and it's, it's a little bit more complex than just saying this is because of that. But I guess I'm curious if we're talking about more of a developmental process, a, a developmental process, or even if we're talking about the emotion regulation process, why an eating disorder? Like why not something else? What is it about 
food or about restricting food or, or even body image, taking up space? Like, what is it about all of that that seems to connect with people's pasts and ways of maintaining these disorders? Well, you know, I think to some degree, it would depend on the eating disorder. So, you know, there's, there's that piece. I do think, um, the significance of food in anorexia and muscle dysmorphia, for example, can be quite different, but food is primal, right? We develop a relationship with food at the very beginning of our lives. Uh, that relationship is shaped by so many different um, factors, including, I'm sure, our own biology, our caretaker's relationship to food, cultural messages about food and the body. So, you know, I think there are a lot of different threads that get woven into our relationship with food. So, you know, there's not, uh, there's not going to be a uniform answer there. It might work better if we look at, um, you know, say one particular eating disorder. Yeah. Or maybe even a specific example, because yeah. you've written books and articles on various different ways that so we're not going to possibly cover all of them. Sure. Sure. You know, maybe, maybe we could think, you know, about binge eating disorder as an example. So, you know, binge eating mm -hmm. disorder is a, is a, is a disorder where people consume in a way that feels out of control, you know, large amounts of food. They're often left feeling, you know, ill afterwards with a lot of guilt, shame, and regret. And, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a struggle that can be caused by many different things. There are many different factors that can be at play with a given patient. But, you know, a common situation that you do see is a person that really uh, struggles with their own relationship to need. There's often a history, and, and the research does bear this out, there's a history of, uh, you know, trauma in these people's backgrounds, trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma, neglect. You know, they've often had um, experiences earlier in development that were very uh, traumatic and compromising. So, you know, a given patient may be left feeling, um, you know, nobody can meet my needs. Nobody's going to take care of me. And in fact, there's something shameful about me having needs. And for that given person, that leaves them feeling, that leaves them dissociating, you know, in, in other words, uh, numbing out, exiting their experience of being in a body, finding ways to be in a slightly altered state. It may leave them feeling, you know, ashamed about having needs and wanting things from other people. And it may, may leave them feeling very angry at some level about, you know, the way that they were treated and what they went through. And it's not like those things alone are going to give somebody binge eating disorder, right? I mean, right. there mm -hmm. have to be other factors that, you know, made food the place where the symptom got expressed because there are other you know, for different people, there are other ways that that kind of history could have manifested. But for the person with binge eating disorder, food becomes the, the kind of locus of the, of the emotional distress. And, you know, well, you know, eating is a place that I can express my need. Um, you know, eating is a place that I can kind of play out the, 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 the history of needing something and then, you know, taking it and just being sort of desperate to get that need met and then being left awash in shame and regret afterwards. It's a, a kind of revival of that earlier developmental drama. So in essence, when we're talking about the communication of something through a symptom, trying to express that they actually do have needs, like every human has something that doesn't feel quite tolerable to express in words. That's the way I understand it. You know, I, I understand um, symptoms as having emotional meaning. 
Yeah. And then sort of adding to that another layer, if somebody struggles with binge purge, then potentially there can be sort of an undoing of, oh my gosh, uh, I didn't mean to put all my needs out there into the world. Let me take it back or something like that. Um, of course, only just one way of conceptualizing. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a common, uh, you know, psychodynamic way of understanding, you know, binge purge symptoms for sure. It's something just crossed my mind. Is there, uh, I guess, an appropriate time for some of this? Because I guess I'm thinking about even just in your example of binge eating, somebody comes in, especially in the beginning, and they're just sort of engulfed in this binge eating. It's happening so frequently. And for sure, we would address, you know, symptom reduction and things that are important to address today. But is there ever a time where looking at what's, uh, you know, cause and maintain the eating disorder is actually not that appropriate or not even appropriate, but not that useful? Well, you know, I kind of have a, I think I have a two-pronged response there. Okay. You know, one is that I try to the degree that I'm able to work as part of a treatment team. So, you know, I'm always trying to work with uh, other providers who have other areas of focus. So, for example, um, you know, a physician who specializes in eating disorders, a behavioral nutritionist who can work concretely around, you know, food and eating and meal planning, maybe a psychiatrist, you know, and then, and then possibly others. So, you know, hopefully there is this kind of divvying up of the different points of intervention that need to be made. So part of my answer would depend on what's, what kind of treatment team am I working with in this, in this particular case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that's, that's part of the answer. But I think, you know, even, even apart from that, there is this, um, I think of it as a kind of rocking back and forth, like on a seesaw. You know, at times you're focused on the concrete, on the symptom, on the behavior. And at times you're, you're, you're kind of zooming out and focusing on the underlying emotional factors that keep the symptom in play. And I think that is one thing that, uh, you know, is, is to some degree unique about the treatment of eating disorders. You know, I, I said that half of my practice is doing psychoanalysis. Often in the psychoanalysis, it's, it's, you know, 90% in the direction of the emotional, the underlying emotional reality. But eating disorders, because they are a concrete, um, you know, concrete and often dangerous symptom, the concreteness does require attention. And I think, you know, you can, you can, you can be in a failure mode if you're not rocking back and forth. If you're just focused on the concrete, you're missing something. If you're just focused on the underlying emotional reality, it's a repetition of a kind of neglect. You're not, you know, paying attention to the kind of visceral reality of the struggle that the person is engaged in. Yeah, I guess sometimes it it gets a little tricky, and this is just from my perspective. So I'm curious what some of your thoughts are in terms of symptom use, and that could be with an eating disorder, it can be with really any sub- substance use or even self-harm, that if there's something that we're getting at whether it's in psychoanalysis or group therapy or wherever it is, and the person is continually turning to symptoms in order to regulate, then part of the question is, where are we going with this? If they're turning to substances or food or there's eating disorder symptoms to regulate. And, you know, I've heard sort of both, both sides in that it's, you know, the argument is maybe it isn't 
really very helpful for someone who's who's really, really symptomatic and will just turn to maybe an increased use of symptoms by some of the inside or place that we go in therapy. Yeah, I think, you know, the the further thing I'd say, you know, my kind of idea of rocking back and forth, I think it doesn't fully do justice to the way that, you know, both can happen at the same time. So, you know, if a person is, you know, deeply entrenched in a symptom and you're talking with them about the symptom and trying to help them with the symptom and trying to help them, you know, put into words what the symptom feels like and the feelings that come before the symptom and trying to help them, you know, think through other possibilities, you know, just just to give examples of kind of very concrete tasks that you could be engaged in. Just right there, you are promoting the development of certain capacities that will be really important for them. Putting feelings into words, making use of an attachment relationship with you, keeping their relationship with you in mind when they move into the symptom. You know, that kind of concrete engagement is also a deep form of relationship. So I guess I'm I'm curious what you would say in terms of with eating disorders, it's usually not somebody who steps through the door with just an eating disorder. There's so much that comes along with it, other other mental illness, personality disorders, different things that sort of either exacerbate the symptoms or whatever it is. And sometimes with some people's personality structure is that it makes it really difficult to explore a lot of these things, whether it's because there's just an intolerance for difficult interpersonal interactions or boundaries or things that are really, really important for the structure of, of therapy or analysis to work. And I guess I'm curious, you know, like what you've done, especially with some of the, the pushback that you've gotten. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think when I was talking about the way that that psychoanalysis looks at the deeper emotional factors earlier in the interview, you know, another way to talk about that would be that that psychoanalysis looks at personality structure. And what we mean by personality structure is just how a person is put together. And one of the things we know is that there are organized ways that are patterned, you know, that people tend to be put together. And so that makes a huge difference. Understanding the personality structure of a given person makes a huge difference in how you relate to them in treatment and how you understand what might be helpful to them. So, you know, for example, there have been studies, like there was a, a study done with the Shadler-Weston assessment protocol that looked at the personality structure of patients with anorexia and bulimia. And, you know, what they found is that, you know, there were three different categories of patients. There were high-functioning perfectionistic people, there were constricted and overly controlled people, and then there were people that were very emotionally dysregulated and under-controlled. And so, you know, as you could imagine, which kind of person it is, is going to make a real difference in how they're engaged in the treatment and, and, and what kinds of conversations they're able to have. And so, you know, we need to be thinking along those lines as we're, you know, developing what therapists call a case formulation. Like, how do we understand this person? So I think sort of going back to what you were saying a bit ago about uh, a diagnostic structure. And when you look at the DSM, there's a, a couple of criteria or more than that. But when we look at a person who's sitting in front of us or whoever we're interacting with, there's yes, what they come in with, their presenting problem, their eating disorder, 
whatever else it might be, depression, anxiety, et cetera. And then there's everything else, which is probably a much bigger picture than an actual diagnosis ticking some, you know, a list off. And there's the personality structure. There's how they interact with people. There's their level of confidence. There's their relationships and how they've navigated their life until now. And all of that is used in a way that we can better understand this person and better understand the eating disorder, larger context, and ultimately how we can help them. Because if we just look at it as the symptoms, then we're missing most of the picture. Yeah. And that, and that is what I've found, you know, when you are working with people with eating disorders and you have the opportunity to work with them over a long period of time, like let's say, you know, 10 years and, you know, things go well at the beginning, say a person, say a person is coming in with anorexia and they fit into that high functioning perfectionistic, just to give an example. And, you know, over the first two or three years, you know, there's a treatment team, there's intervention and, and the person, you know, quote unquote, recovers from anorexia. You know, they're no longer at a dangerously low weight. They're eating as, you know, reasonably normalized by the DSM standards. They no longer have anorexia. But what you see is the treatment continues. If you are fortunate enough to have that opportunity is that the underlying personality structure that contributed to the anorexia is still very much intact. So, you know, they're still struggling with, you know, perfectionism, for example. And that perfectionism, as you inquire into it, is very linked to a often profound degree of underlying anxiety about, um, you know, loss of control, say. And that perfectionism is also accompanied by a kind of brutal inner critic that, you know, is always attacking and demeaning the person, especially in moments of vulnerability and uncertainty. And that all plays out, you know, in their first relationship in college, you know, for example. And, you know, it plays out as they're taking exams and trying to make friends. And it impairs their social life because they're so relentlessly self-critical. And it makes it hard to be in a relationship because, you know, you don't want to show flaws to the other person. So, you know, what I'm getting at is this way that the personality structure, in my view, is the ultimate sort of focus of treatment. But it may not be... And it may be that it can't be attended to in a deep way at the beginning because there's this need to address the concreteness of the eating disorder. So <laughs> I hate when it's put this way, but almost the quote real work happens after most of the symptoms are done. And not to say that the other work wasn't real work. It's, it's brutally difficult to do. But when we're talking about what's underneath the surface and the personality structures that, that continue to maintain symptoms, that's all about and you're saying in this sort of situation happening after and with a deeper exploration in analysis or therapy. Yeah. I think of it as, you know, full recovery, you know, full recovery involves addressing the underlying personality structure. Yeah. I'm just laughing because I, I recently had someone asks me like, I'm really stressed and I'm really stressed about school and I need to get an A and I'm not really sure how talking is going to help fix that. So I'm curious what, what, what your standard uh, response to something like that would be. Well, I'd probably say some version of, you know, I think your question, you know, you're expressing skepticism about whether talking can help. And, you know, actually that I think to me is a communication. It's a communication to me that you feel, you know, despair about whether I can help you and you feel deeply skeptical of 
the ability for words to, you know, reach your, your suffering. You know, you feel in some ways that, you know, nothing you and I could do or say together would be of help to you. So I'd, I'd want to try to deepen that experience that they're having of feeling, you know, that they're contending with something alone and that, you know, there could never be another person with them in it. Which is a lot of information in and of itself. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it tells you, mm-hmm. it gives you a lot of hypotheses about this person's attachment style, their personality structure, and maybe how they experience life more generally. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to end with a quote I pulled. I don't even remember from where, but it's from you. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about it. Um, so can I read it to you? Sure. Sorry to put you on the spot here. (laughs) Reflecting on this difficult work, I have often thought that our emphasis on rapid symptom reduction signifies not only our intent to help as quickly as possible, but also our need to evade confrontation with profound emotional pain. And I believe you're referring to we as clinicians. Um, And I guess, you know, just to sort of offer a little bit more insight onto that. Yeah, I think, you know, that reflection, it it comes from my um, sort of contending with the state of the eating disorders treatment field more generally and the way that, you know, it seems to me that we're very focused on, and to some degree, understandably, again, you know, this is not not intended as a criticism. We're focused on symptom reduction and concreteness of food and eating and, you know, getting weight back up. And again, all of that's very understandable. But I do wonder, you know, knowing that these kinds of things can be overdetermined, they can be influenced by more than one motivation. Is there also a way that it's hard for us to really hang in there with the underlying emotional reality that our patients are struggling with? I know it can be for me. You know, if somebody is in a place of, you know, for example, starving themselves, you know, even to the point of potential death, what is the underlying emotional reality of a person that, that is in that place? It's, it's very painful and it's hard to really meet it with our own open-heartedness. And I think it's only if we can do that, which is not an easy thing to do, that we can really start to understand that person from the inside. So here's the promotion for therapists get your own therapy? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I really do feel that, you know, one's own personal therapy is, is an, an ongoing supervision, but certainly yeah, personal therapy is, is one of the most indispensable aspects of training. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, not a requirement for nothing in, in analytic training. <laughs> right. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I have a website. Uh, it's just Tom Woldridge, T-O-M-W-O-O-L-D-R-I-D-G-E.com. Uh, you know, my books are on Amazon, for example. And, you know, I just say, uh, if I can be of help to anybody, feel feel free, uh, you know, to reach out to me if you need uh, references or resources, or if I can answer any questions I'm I'm available you made it to the end thank you for listening every single one of your downloads means so much to me if this conversation is leaving you wanting more be sure to sign up for my newsletter you'll have the opportunity to reply back 
directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.